Welcome to The Threat Show, powered by Fletch. We always talk about this technology gap where you know we can always been spending on application development and servers and the latest, we're going to cloud, we're doing all this kind of stuff. Meanwhile, we're barely funding security. So we have this huge technology security gap that mm -hmm. has to be closed within a certain amount of time after IPO. Welcome to The Threat Show. I'm Darian Kinlan, VP of Technology at Fletch. And joining me each week and every week is Chris Wilder, Research Director and Senior Analyst at Tag Cyber. Welcome back to the show, Chris. Thanks, Darian. It's good to have you back. You've been away for a few weeks and it's nice to see your pretty face again. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah, we hope our readers didn't have too many cybersecurity woes while we took a few weeks off. But in any case, we're back providing weekly rundown of threats that they should be aware of, actionable insights and interviews with the best and brightest minds in the cybersecurity industry. And on that note, this week, we're joined by a special guest, a colleague of Chris's, John Massarini. John is a 30-year CISO veteran who's worked for major multinational companies, including Dow Jones, Millicom, and Myax, with corporate expertise in building global security programs to address today's challenges. John's expertise is in developing highly skilled teams with strengths in risk management, identity management, security operations, and business continuity. As a senior security analyst at Tag Cyber, John spends his days assisting enterprise clients on how to mature and enhance their security programs while also meeting with new security technology vendors and digging into how their solutions would benefit enterprise security programs. Welcome to the show, John. Well, I mean, that was that was a bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I knew I knew you win. So <laughs> exactly. let's jump into it, Darian. <laughs> Awesome. Well, yeah, so we'll be talking with John a little bit more about a number of different topics on the top of minds of any enterprise, CISO, including small, medium-sized businesses. But first, let's run through the numbers and this week's trending threats. It's been amazing to see how this has evolved so far. I think one of the biggest challenges was that when we talk about whether or not there was any sort of lull period during this time, we were kind of wondering, is that a reality? And it turns out that, yeah, in fact, we saw kind of a downward trend over the past three weeks when we were on hiatus of the number of distinct major threats. But when we looked at the details behind this, it's really just a consolidation of major threats that have all been focused around very specific topics. So all of the 300 plus threats that we were originally tracking have now been consolidated down to maybe about half of that. And you might wonder, well, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Uh, I think at the end of the day, operators are still concerned about these sorts of threats that it's not really an excuse, unfortunately, to take time off. I'm curious your thoughts here, Chris. Yeah, no, I, I, I wish it were holiday season in bad, bad town, but um, it's not. The one interesting thing, I, I just did a little bit of bar napkin math and just looking at over the past 30 days, there's 74 active campaigns going on right now, mm -hmm. all the way from botnets, downloaders, ransomwares. About between 75 and 78% of those current campaigns right now are ransomware. And right. so I think you're absolutely spot on. These families are consolidating. We're getting new families. You know, John and I talk a lot about kind of the cyclical nature of vulnerabilities and, and bad actors. And the techniques that they use, you know, so they'll always keep coming back to tried and true. And I think it's nothing too crazy. I think the numbers a little bit surprised at the size of the drop, but it makes sense what you just said, Darian. 
Yeah, and when we dig into the details behind this, it's really a number of kind of one-off topics that have seemed to gone inactive or dormant, meaning we haven't really seen new coverage about some of these older topics in the past 30 days. But the ones that have stuck around, the major threats that do recurringly come up across all of our OSINT sources are actually pretty strong and are actually growing during this time. But yeah, let's take a look at what were some of the interesting threats that we found over the past week. Specifically, we have a number of different vulnerabilities spanning not just endpoint software, but major appliances as well, as well as some new changes on the ransomware front. Starting us off, it turns out that the previous remote code execution vulnerability focused on FortiGate firewalls is still alive and well. And in fact, researchers over at Bishop Fox are reporting that over 330,000 firewalls are still unpatched and vulnerable to this supposed vulnerability. It's actually surging in more compromises and it's not actually going down, which is surprising. Unfortunately, not many organizations appear to be taking either this seriously or patching this particular system regularly, which is a point of contention. It remains to be seen whether or not this problem will still be around in the next month or two, but Smart Money says, yeah, it's probably going to be around for another, what, three, six months? I wonder if they're doing a competition with Log4j to see how many they can't patch. Um, (laughs) Now, this, this is interesting because one of the things that really stuck out to me in this one is a lot of the systems that are affected by this haven't been patched for five to seven years. That tells me a couple of different things. One is it's obviously everything probably falls under IT and they really don't follow the CBEs and they don't have a regular patching process and all that fun stuff. And then, or the other side of that is they don't know where the things are. And, you know, people think, well, it's hardware, so it's going to be safe. But this whole thing could be cleared up like Log4j with good inventory and understanding what you've got and what you need and putting a good solid patch policy in place that you adhere to. You know, the one thing that we always find and we see a lot of is folks focus or are hyper-focused on endpoints and servers, right? And completely neglect the network devices that, that are kind of running the critical infrastructure. So it's sad to say, I'm not surprised by this at all, especially your comment about some of these firewalls not being patched for five years. It is just, it's one of those things where, you know, you will probably walk into any enterprise right now find the same exact situation on a Cisco router, a Juniper router, a checkpoint firewall, whatever it is. It's just, they are neglected when it comes to the patch management process. Yeah. The only other scary part of that too is I estimate about 70 to 75% of firewalls are actually misconfigured. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's a whole nother can of worms. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. It, the, the pessimist to me says most organizations are just deploying a firewall to check a box without yeah. properly configuring it, unfortunately. To comment further, John, I think edge networking devices appear to be the blind spot, the perpetual blind spot for a lot of organizations. Along those lines, this next vulnerability actually is another edge network device. In this case, we talked about, I think in a couple of weeks back, the secure file sharing appliance known as MoveIt suffered a number of different vulnerabilities, most notably around compromising and being able to trigger remote code execution that was abused by the Clop ransomware game. Now they've gone after yet another victim, which was 
a subcontractor to the Dublin Airport Authority, impacting data from about 3,000 employees. But the list of victims keeps going on and on and on. And similar to Log4J, it seems like no one really knew that they're either they were using MoveIt or that their suppliers were using MoveIt, but it's now impacted so many different supply chains. It'll be interesting to see how long the discovery and the victimology of this particular attack keeps going, whether or not it's going to be going around for a year or two or five. That's unfortunate. Our enterprise customers right now, the supply chain is is probably one of their biggest scaries. People are losing their job because of what happens in a partner organization somewhere in the supply chain. You know, the upstream also gets affected and people get fired there too. So this is a pretty big trend that we're seeing, not just software supply chain, but supply chain and critical infrastructure. I think if we ran some numbers back, you'd see probably a huge increase in supply chain and, and critical infrastructure attacks. And then the rest of it seemed to be pretty, you know, they're probably relatively opportunistic, but these are real, very, very targeted attacks. Kind of makes me wonder if organizations in their supply chain checklist are going to specifically call out for any new vendor, do you use this particular appliance or not? Similar to like the log4j specific questions we started seeing on some of these supply chain agreements that organizations were trying to essentially get a handle of this particular problem. But yeah. in any event, third on our list is actually a set of vulnerabilities that were discovered and fixed recently within the latest Firefox update. In this particular case, one of them was actually a uh, potential remote code execution vulnerability by tricking a user to basically visit a website engaging in a WebRTC connection, which is common if you're doing like any sort of full motion video. Thankfully, the, this particular fix, is, along with four others, were already deployed. So if you do have Firefox, definitely want to update that as soon as possible. Unfortunately, though, Firefox is also transitioning a lot of old Windows and Mac systems over to using their extended security release phase or cycle of their software, in which case only critical security fixes are getting deployed. So this is usually a good forcing function for organizations to consider updating some of their older hardware if possible, just so that they have the latest and greatest security fixes deployed and available for this sort of software. So I still contend they're the, probably one of the most secure browsers out there. So they're they're always ahead of it. Definitely, definitely. It's just, I think one of the challenges are, you know, if you're a CISO at an organization and let's say you have a bunch of legacy outdated hardware, at some point it makes sense to upgrade, not just because the software is not running properly, but because security fixes are no longer available for that older hardware. Yeah, yeah it's the same thing's happening with, Chrome right now, right? Chrome mm -hmm. has started pushing a, a notice out saying that the older versions, it, you know, if you're not on certain levels of OS, they're going to just stop patching. And the versions aren't that old when you consider it, right? I mean, right. It's just 18 months old. They're not, you know, whatever the number is, but it, it's it's a relatively recent version of software that is no longer going to be patched because of the age of the hardware and or operating system chart. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think the one vendor that has the largest track record of supporting like legacy hardware in my mind is probably Apple. They tend to go back like and support 8 to 10 years of hardware that's that old. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of rare. Right? Most vendors only focus on maybe hardware that's 3 to 5 years old and anything older than that you're going to be very lucky if you get 
regular timely security fixes. Yeah. Yeah. I'd also argue, I think there are still a lot of enterprises out there that are, again, hyper-focused on the OS level rather than the application layer. How many times have we seen older versions of whether it's browsers or Adobe or whatever it is sitting on workstations, right, that are really not patched because to the point you're making, maybe people don't know it's there. Fair enough. So moving next on our list, CISOs warned that a number of new vulnerabilities have been discovered across Samsung handsets, as well as D-Link routers. Probably the most critical one is related to remote command injection vulnerability that Health Networks discovered, specifically for D-Link routers that has been actively exploited and abused by the Mirai botnet. But it's likely other edge networking devices are also being targeted in a similar manner as well. A lot of small, medium-sized businesses might be using this brand of hardware. If so, you definitely want to deploy the patch and get this stuff updated sooner rather than later. Again, same theme of (laughs) edge networking devices not really being prioritized by most organizations. These are all the things you can buy right in Best Buy or Amazon. So you know they're getting getting drop-shipped and installed and forgotten about. And a lot of times you just don't even change the password. It's admin <laughs> password. <laughs> so, yeah, sometimes we're our own worst enemies at the branch. Fair enough. So a couple of new updates on the ransomware front. Apparently there is a new ransomware group, potentially a splinter group called 8Base, that appears to be rivaling in the number of victims that they've compromised compared to LockBit. And basically seems to be an offshoot potentially of another type of ransomware group called Ransom House that tries to essentially buy leaked data and then bribe or hold that data for ransom for extortion efforts by victims. But in this particular case, there's essentially a forecast that along with the big three ransomware groups, Conti, Lockbit, and Black Cat or ELF-V, 8Base is set to become the new player in this space. And potentially, we will start seeing a lot more victims attributed to this particular ransomware group. Ultimately, there's not really much in the way of actionable information within this group, other than you probably want to start prioritizing any vulnerabilities, any software, any infrastructure that this ransomware operator is also going after, including just not the legacy top three ransomware groups. Yeah, they'll, they'll get there. I mean, this is probably a bunch of angry young men and women who got decided to go start their own thing, spun out of it. But kind of the real heart and soul of this, these ones here, these are double extortion. Now we're probably up to triple extortion ransomware attacks. And in the last three or four companies that I've that I've advised that have, have been hit with ransomware, just know that your data is gone. They have exfiltrated your data. And just work on that premise because probably eight times out of 10 now, your data is gone and they're going to come back. And you know if you do pay the ransomware, they will keep coming back. And so just be ready for that. And it goes back to you know obviously having good good hygiene and a backup process. I talk a lot about data classification and purging information and those types of things, having those policies. But if you do get hit, just assume and just just know that your data is more than likely to be gone and they, they've taken it out. And so it's it's important to find, you know, to probably, you know, a lot of companies outsource these things to like Black Fog and 
some other vendors that actually deal with this, but this is a scary one. And I think we're going to see more and more of these families popping up. Slight silver lining on this on this front. So the researchers over at Avast actually developed and released for free a decryptor for the Acura ransomware. This will likely help a lot of historical victims. On the flip side, if this group does still continue to gain traction, they'll probably change up their ransomware to use a different encryption methodology to avoid this in the future. But that said, back in June, Acura ramped up, started going after not just Windows systems, but also Linux systems, specifically VMware ESXi appliances to try to compromise and encrypt all of that data as part of their extortion efforts. Thankfully, the decryptor operates and is able to decrypt data on both Windows and Linux systems, although the decryptor itself looks like it's a Windows-based binary. So if you do have, let's say, encrypted data from a Linux system, you have to copy it over to a Windows environment in order to use the decryptor effectively. Is this like a nail in the coffin for this particular ransomware group? It's unlikely they'll just change tactics and still continue their operation. Hacktivism in reverse, I guess. (laughs) Right, (laughs) exactly. That kind of wraps up our threats for the week. It's certainly been a very interesting standpoint and compared to previous weeks. At this point, I'd like to pivot the conversation over to our guest, John, to kind of talk a little bit more about just in general, what are the the types of concerns that CISOs are feeling right now, especially with kind of current events related to all of these different threats? I think one of the, the biggest recent updates we saw in the news was how regulation and enforcement actions are now being taken against not just publicly traded companies, but CISOs within those companies to kind of hold them more accountable to these sorts of breaches and security issues. I'm curious your thoughts here, John, is this going to be a trend moving forward? And you know, what are some examples that come to your mind of what this kind of highlights and how operators should, should think about it? Yeah, you know, it's such a different regulatory landscape today than it was, you know, even four or five years ago. Obviously, we know everything that happened with with the Joe Sullivan case, which I think is honestly a little bit different than what the SEC is trying to address now. With the Wells notice that just got issued to to SolarWinds and a, a lot of the rumblings that that caused, it really makes a lot of people just stop and think. You know, if you look at I'm going to get on my soapbox for a little bit. CISA, right? Chief Information Security Officer. Typically, when you look at an enterprise, the word chief, chief financial officer, chief risk officer, chief compliance officer, they are wholly and fully responsible to the board, to the company for that function. Whereas CISO is typically not. Right? They have to work their way through technology, typically report to a CIO, a CTO. Rarely do they report to, directly to the board like the other C-suite executives. So when you look at kind of the direction the SEC is going, they're almost treating it like it is a formal C-suite kind of role, but the CISO doesn't have the C-suite authority like their peers. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see where all of this pans out when it comes to the accountability that the regulators can put on the CISOs, right? 
we always say our job is to inform, not decide. Well, right. if you follow the logic of the regulators, our job is now to decide, right? So right. I think it brings a lot of complexity in. I think it's maybe scarily too strong a word, but it's certainly concerning to a lot of people who have this duality of pressure, right? We want to do the right thing. We want to secure our enterprises, but the CTOs, the CIOs, the, you know, the, the CFOs of the world in some cases kind of, they handcuff a lot of the CISOs out there, right? Now there are obviously a group that do report to the board and a group that have the autonomy and the authority to make those decisions. I would argue the vast majority of people with the CISO title do not, right? Right. How is this going to play? Even if we do everything right and you still have a breach, you still do the reporting. If every I isn't dotted, T is crossed, you could end up with a Wells notice, right? And it's it's this very interesting state I think the industry is in today that I think is going to it's going to shake up where we report to, how we sit, and then they've delayed it. But the SEC was also going to push out the new regulations around cyber security on board, you know, with board representation. They've delayed that ruling for a little bit. But at the end of the day, they're using the big baseball bat and forcing enterprises to really get serious about this. So I love that aspect of it. But I think they're putting the cart before the horse a little bit with with holding that CISO level accountable in the majority of the organizations because they just truly don't have the authority. Totally get the good intentions behind this. But to your point, it's like. There is no common accepted structure of how oh, <laughs> accountability works within CISOs at any organization, right? So from the SEC standpoint, you either have one of two options. Either you have to evaluate each company's accountability structure distinctly and differently and figure out who actually is accountable within every organization that has a breach. Or the flip side is, you make it a requirement that CISOs report directly to the board and you have a uniform, consistent reporting structure similar to, as you mentioned, other C-suite execs like the CEO, the CFO. It's interesting that this might be a forcing function for more standards type organization. I don't know how that's going to play out in the next one yeah. to, to three years, well, honestly. I, I think also having the C- CISO report to the board in a lot of a lot of situations, it's it's probably pretty good. If the bigger the company, there probably will be more senior people that know how to manage up. A lot of organizations right now, they putting putting the CISO in front of a board director is a liability mm-hmm. um, because you know, Darian, you, you and I talk a lot about the fact that you know we're, we're our own worst enemies when it comes to communication. And so, I think the CISO role. And correct me if I'm wrong, John. It's going away from kind of being these technical guys that were programming firewalls, probably incorrectly, back you know several years ago. They worked with, worked their way up, and the company said we have to have a CISO. You basically took your IT director or your IT lead, put that person in in the accidental role of that. They don't know what they're doing, and then now you're expecting them to to present to the boards. We are seeing a lot more very executive level CISOs coming into larger organizations that are, you know, they're, they're act more like executives and their sole intention is to communicate, you know, security. And I think from the SEC perspective, 
because they're they're a little hyperbolic right now. But I think what's going to happen is that the cybersecurity controls and things like that are going to be things that you have to report into your 10Ks and your 8Ks and your reports, especially with supply chain. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, we do, Darren, we have this kind of training session that we do for some of our some of our clients called the CISO tribes. And we've gone through and we've identified kind of the eight different kinds of CISOs are. And one of them is the anointed one, right? The one who <laughs> didn't necessarily want the job just got anointed with the title because somebody needed to check box. I think there's a lot more of them around than there are the people who have kind of aspired into the role and they've never been trained. They've never had a mentor or or any kind of training and education on how to speak to a board. They do not want to talk vulnerabilities and, and hacking and all that. I mean, yes, they do because they're kind of interested in it. But when it comes to the formal reporting, they need to understand risk and they need to understand business impact and what they have to do to manage it, right? So that's a very different discussion than a firewall tech has with a networking engineer or an application developer, right? And when you start looking at a lot of the CISOs, they've come up through that path. So that's really their most comfortable form of addressing it. And the board members' eyes just glaze over when they start talking about all that kind of, it's almost data overload. So getting them, and Chris is a huge proponent of just get a mentor, right? Find someone who's done it. I I can't tell you a single one of my peers who is not interested in mentoring young CISOs or people who want to be CISOs. We all love doing it because we all know the only way we're going to get out is if we have somebody to bring in, right? So having that mentor and going through those presentations and those decks and finding the right way to articulate to the board is such a critical capability. And I think that's lacking. I don't know if the SEC requirements are going to actually highlight that, right? Make it better, make it worse. But I think, like you said, the next two to three years is going to be wildly interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So John, from your perspective, like if you're, let's say, head of security at a small, medium-sized business, right? Maybe, Maybe you have the CISO title, maybe you don't, but what's the inflection point where you have to start worrying about these sorts of implications, worrying about regulatory compliance from this standpoint? Is it just when the company goes public, maybe when it's starting to go public, maybe when it's hinting about it. I'm curious your thoughts here. Most of those are already too late, right? Wow. Yeah. You know, so again, some of the enterprises we deal with, and I've been in, worked in enterprises that have gone IPF. There are a lot of requirements around moving from a private company to a public company. And regulators are very clear. You have to the end of the year following your IPO to be SOX compliant, not close, not sort of, right? When you start looking at your environment and you start looking at your infrastructure, there are years worth of investments that need to be made, right? We always talk about this technology gap where, you know, we can always been spending on application development and servers and the latest, we're going to cloud, we're doing all this kind of stuff. Meanwhile, we're barely funding security. So we have this huge technology security gap that Mm -hmm. has to be closed within a certain amount of time after IPO. So if you're if you're one of those people that are going, oh, okay, we're, I'm a private company, I'm kind of okay. As soon as you start hearing those whispers of, 
maybe we're going to go public, you know, or, or ball, right? Because the same thing will happen. Same if thing, you, yeah. If you're acquired, right? So yeah. you need to get ahead of that as soon as you can. Wow. So the conversation needs to be the same level that a CEO might have with a CFO about, hey, how are we doing financially? Are we ready? It needs to be a similar conversation with a head of security for planning purposes. Yeah. And I, I would argue security and technology, right? Because CISOs, while we run the governance aspect of it, a lot of what we rely on is the technology that an entirely different group is making decisions on, right? So, you know, CISOs generally don't say, go out and buy ABC antivirus, go out and buy ABC firewalls. They say, we need a firewall that does this, right. or we need antivirus, endpoint protection that does this, and hand it off to the people who go do the right thing. So I think it's a much bigger discussion. And I will tell you, I'm never surprised when someone says the shape of our IT and security has caused us to delay our IPM. Would never surprise me. Yeah. And the other side of that too, conversely, is that John was saying earlier, a lot of security organizations are completely underfunded. But worse, I think, is companies that look at security as an afterthought. And they're, they're woefully behind. And John, correct me if I'm wrong, but but I think this is part of the impetus for the reason why the executive order for SBOMS came out, mm-hmm. um, Security Bill of Materials, because a lot of organizations were not, you know, they're using so much third-party open source software that they really didn't have a handle on it. So now we're seeing CISOs kicking and screaming, shifting left, as they say, you know, having to get really involved with the application development and the DevOps teams because they need to know what goes into this software. And it came through the executive order, which got pushed down to the SEC. The SEC pushes that requirement to public companies because that's where their jurisdiction is. And the public companies are pushing it down to their third-party providers. You're the one that taught me that, John. <laughs> I didn't think about that chain <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> but I think that's a very, very big truth that's coming. And going back to the point where the CISO is now becoming very, very strategic in the organization. And it can't be just that high to mid-level manager. Right. Interesting. Well, you know, gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you both about all of these issues. I think we'll have plenty more material to discuss in the coming weeks, months, and years as this plays out. But for now, I appreciate your time and thank you so much for joining us today to our audience. Wonderful to to be back here talking about threats. Please join us again next week. And if you have a desire or interest in learning more about any of the topics we've discussed in past or future shows, please DM us at The Threat Show. Thanks again and look forward to talking with you next week. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning into The Threat Show. If you enjoyed the show, Subscribe to us on YouTube, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and interact with us on Twitter at The Threat Show. Also, be sure to subscribe to Fletch's interactive newsletter and Trending Threats app to go deeper into the stories we discuss and the Threat Index. Be sure to stay tuned to stay ahead of threats. 